0: All right. Good morning once again, church. Kids, you're dismissed to go to your classrooms. I want to say thank you to Rayma. So Rayma, our new children's director, uh, was preparing, you know, for today to be kind of her big first day of, you know, getting everything ready with our outdoor service and kind of where all the kids were going to be and had to change in about 15 minutes and she's doing a great job. So if you see her, make sure you thank her. Well, she's she's, uh, been here now for a couple weeks and just doing a fantastic job. Uh, We're so pleased um, that she's joining our staff. So uh, thank you to Rhema. Please uh, turn with me, church, in your Bibles to the Book of Judges, chapter seven. We'll be in verses seven to eight. Pastor David just reminded me as well that I forgot to remind you about the connection cards. So it should be a habit right now, uh, by now. But uh, if you forgot, go ahead and grab that connection card at the end of your row and fill it out with any prayer requests that you might have, and then pass it down if you have not done so already. Like I said, we're going to be in Judges chapter 7. I think I said verses 7 to 8 I meant chapters 7 to 8. Uh, we're in chapters, Judges 7 and 8 this morning. I want to say thank you to Pastor Jerry once again for preaching in my absence last week. We were uh, on vacation uh, it was a great uh, to be able to get away, but every time we get away, it's, it's very nice to be able to rest and, and re- recover, but at the same time, then coming back uh, the next Sunday, just to r- reminded, too, I miss you guys, and uh, we, uh, just, it's just such a joy to worship with my church family. Uh, So, I'm thankful to be able to be back this morning and preaching the Word. I also get a little antsy, you know, when I take a Sunday off to preach. I get a little antsy to get back up here. So, I'm ready to go. I don't know about you guys, but I'm ready. I'm excited to be judging it, jumping into Judges, chapters 7 and 8. So, please pray with me, and then we will uh, dive into God's Word together. Heavenly Father, God, once again, you're good. Um, We cherish the old, rugged cross. God, that cross... That represents our only hope of salvation, our only hope of relationship with you, our only hope to be called your sons and your daughters, our only hope to live for the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of this earth, which will pass away, God. And now we are reminded as we sing about the old rugged cross that as we turn our lives to you and repent of our sin and follow Jesus, we are no longer living for the kingdom of this world. We are living in the eternal kingdom even right now, God, and you call us to live our lives in a way that renews and restores the kingdom all because of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray, if there's anyone who doesn't know you this morning, God, that is here, God, we just pray that these truths, maybe they've heard them before, maybe they never have, but I pray that, God, by your Spirit, you would make these truths real to them, that they would know it in a way that they have never known it and understood it before, and that's something that only you can do, God. So we just pray that you would do a mighty work in your word this morning. God, it's not about my words, it's not about what I say, it's about your word, and so we just pray that you would do something awesome this morning in this place, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We live in a culture that is obsessed with things that are bigger and better and more, right? I was reminded of that in our vacation this week when we were in Hilton Head, and We spent one evening going down to uh, the marina there and to look at all the boats and there's all these people that go down there to look at the boats and and it's not because uh, everyone is just so into boats that they want to go and look down and look at the boats. You go to kind of gawk at the people who are uh, doing pretty well for themselves, right? And you uh, see all these, you know, these little boats and the medium boats and these gigantic boats, people with boats that are carrying their other boats. I don't quite understand that when you have a boat and you say, I need to get a bigger boat to carry my smaller boat. But anyways, all that to say is that we live in a culture that is obsessed with things that are bigger and more. And so whether it's vacation homes or wealth or social media followers or whatever it is, our culture where we live in right now equates quantity with success. Say that again. Our culture equates quantity with success. And one danger of being a Christian in our culture is that we can take that measure of success and equate it with God's blessing. Meaning that we tend to think that growth and bigness and having more and more automatically means that God is blessing something. And we do this all the time. I've never uh, asked a business person how, how things are going with their business and, and heard them say, God is just really blessing us right now. Profits are just shrinking exponentially year over year. We're just so blessed in our business right now. Never heard a farmer say, God has really blessed us with one of our worst yields this year. I've never heard a pastor say, we cannot believe how much God is blessing our church. Attendance is down 50%. God is just revealing his blessing to us right now. We don't think about it that way. And I'm not saying that God doesn't bless us through increase. Of course, he does sometimes bless us through increase. Sometimes he gives us more, and that is, in fact, a blessing but God is just as likely to bless us through increase as he is to bless us through decrease and that is the thing that we tend to forget and so as Christians in America we need to be constantly reminded that God's measure of success is much different than our measure of success. God views success in a much different way. and We're going to see that in our story this morning. We're going to see Gideon's army get smaller and smaller and smaller until it's almost nothing. This is a very familiar story to many of us. We're going to see through this story, how God flips things around from what we normally think. So we're going to see three things this morning. First, we're going to see how our weakness displays God's power. In our weakness, we are able to show God's power in a way greater than we can in our strength. So we're going to see our weakness displaying God's power. Second, we're going to see how our fear displays God's kindness. Sometimes we're tempted to think, Think that we need to put on this facade of well, I don't have any fear. I'm tough and I'm going to make it through whatever I need to make it through. But sometimes even our fear can display God's kindness in a way that it does not show otherwise. And then finally, we're going to see how our failure displays God's victory. God doesn't view success in the same way that we do. And the key verse of our whole passage this morning is right at the beginning. It's right at verse 2. If we miss this verse, then we're going to miss the point of the entire passage. So look at it with me. Gideon and his massive army of 32,000 are gearing up to fight the Midianites. And look at what God says in verse 2. Look down at your Bibles. It says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to 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 give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. I'm going to read that again. The people with you are too many. There's too many of you to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. So God's saying if you bring your whole army to attack the Midianites, you're going to be tempted to take the credit for yourselves rather than giving the credit where it's due to God, to the one who delivered And in other words, what we see here, like I said, is that our weakness displays God's power. Our weakness displays God's power. Imagine, if you will, that you are Gideon. Put yourselves in the shoes of Gideon right now. And you are in charge of leading the Israelite army to defeat the Midianites. And God says to you, as you're prepared to go into battle, your army is too big. Not too small, too big. What would your response be? No, it's not, God. (laughs) I think we're just about the right size. I don't think we need to be any smaller than we are. In fact, if you want to give us a few more people, that would be great. But that's what God said. He said there's too many people. You need to trim it down. Verse 3. Therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. So, if anyone's afraid, you can go home. Well, that's uh, actually a. Uh, for some, a welcome out, I would think. If you're afraid, you can go home. Now, interestingly, this actually has precedent in Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8 says this. It says, The officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who's fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. So there's a principle at play here, which is that you, if you have an army of people getting ready to risk their lives to go into battle and you have somebody who's just terrified, and he's cowering in fear, and he's saying to everybody, we're going to get slaughtered, this is it, this is the end, I'm going to die, you're going to die, we're all going to die. If you got that guy in your army, he's not going to do much good, right? You need to get him out of there. Somebody's too afraid that he's gonna, his fear is going to start to spread and cause everyone else to be afraid too. So it's better to just send the fearful people home. Well, I have no idea what Gideon expected at this point, how well he knew his army. Maybe he thought, okay, I'll tell him. Maybe we'll lose 500 guys and whatever. We're we're a strong army. We're not afraid of anything. We're ready to go into battle. Okay, I'll send the fearful home. So end of verse 3 tells us what happened, though. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. Whew, that's a bummer. I don't know what he's thinking about his leadership at that point. I'd be probably starting to question myself a little bit. He's got this army of 32,000 strong, and he says, All right, if you're afraid, you can go home, and 22,000 of them slink home away from the battle. So you're probably thinking, if you're Gideon, are you kidding me? Lost over half my men. Okay, 10,000, God, whew, if you need me to go into battle with 10,000, I'll do it. I don't want to, but I guess it's better to have 10,000 men who aren't afraid than those other 22,000 who are afraid. So here we go. And I don't know, this is all speculation. We don't see any of this in the text. It's just kind of me reading what I, how I would experience this if I was Gideon. But here we go, he's psyching himself up for battle again, probably rethinking his strategy, just like we were rethinking our strategy for church this morning when it started raining, we realized we had to change everything. Well, he's got a battle plan for 32,000, and now that's 10, so he's probably drawing up his plans for the new battle when he hears these dreaded words from the Lord again. Verse 4, the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. No, they're not, God, I promise you. I promise, we'll give you all the credit. If we win, we're not going to take any of the credit for ourselves. I promise we've got just the right amount of people now. That's not what he said. That's what I would have said. God has other plans. So he tells them to take his men down to the water to be divided further. Verse 5, so he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself... Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. So all he's doing here is basically coming up with a way, a random way to divide them. So there's no virtue in drinking water one way versus the other. This is just a random way to divide the men, so all the men who... Make a cup with their hands and drink it like that. All those people go over there. All the people who kneel down and drink the water like a dog would drink the water. You guys go over there. And so it turns out that the people who drink with a cup in their hands was 300. And all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And so I imagine here that Gideon is thinking to himself, okay, we only lost 300 more guys we're going to be okay with 9,700. It's okay. And then God says, I "What I, to me, would be the most dreaded words of all. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go, every man to his home. God, you got that backwards, right? You meant that the lappers should go home and everyone else should stay. You, you, want, you want me to send the 300 home, right, God? No. With 300 men, I will give the Midianites into your hand. And so Gideon, who entered the day with 32,000 men at his side, had seen those numbers reduced to just 300. I'm not very good at math, but I'm pretty sure that's a 99% reduction in his army in a single day. Ouch. God, what are you doing. Why did God do this? Well, verse 2 tells us, so it would be clear that the victory belonged to God and not to man. God's power is displayed in our weakness. We are so, so tempted to be glory robbers from God. I am in my heart a glory robber. Robber. I struggle to be utterly and fully and completely dependent on God until the moment where I actually have to be. We are glory robbers. Even if we don't say it out loud, even if we don't walk around just like boasting, saying, yeah, God, I'm the one who's doing all of this. I'm in control of my life. There's a difference between lip service and actually depending 100% on God. And at least knowing my own heart, I know my temptation to lip service versus actually depending 100% on God. God. God's power is not displayed in our strength as much as it is displayed in our weakness. We see this in the New Testament as well, several places. One of the clearest places is 2 Corinthians 12. Paul has a thorn in his flesh, and he's pleading with the Lord to remove it. And this is what God said. Verse 8 Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And my question for us this morning as a church is, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Again, we tend to think that when we have more and more than God is blessing us, and when we have less and less that God is not showing his blessing, and yet sometimes it's the exact opposite. Sometimes when the Lord gives us more, it is not a blessing. And sometimes when the Lord gives us less, it causes us to depend on Him in such a way that we are blessed beyond what we could ever imagine. God's power is displayed in weakness. When we think about Gideon at the beginning of the day, God had revealed the sign of the fleece to him, like we saw in the sermon last week, and his confidence was in the Lord, right? Right? Is he prepared for battle with 32,000 men. I'm sure he's thinking, okay, uh, my confidence is in the Lord. God has shown very clearly to me that he's got this, that he's in charge. But he still had 32,000 men at his side. Where was his confidence when that 32,000 was ripped to 300? And where is our confidence when our 32,000 whatever is pared back to 300? And we have something in front of us that now there's no way I can do it. Right now there's no way I can do this without the power of God working. That's where we want to be, church, is it not? Amen. That's the place that we want to be. And yet our flesh just like just wants anything but that. It's like a magnet just pointing the opposite way. We are so much better off when we are utterly dependent on the Lord for everything. And yet, and yet, and yet, even when the Lord shows himself to us time and time and time again, we still want to be glory robbers, and we still want our 32,000 men by our side. God's power is made perfect in weakness. You think Gideon found any deeper places in his heart that were holding back trust? When those 32,000 were reduced to three? 100. Can you think of a time in your life when your prayer life goes to just a whole nother level because it becomes clear how weak and powerless you really are? I certainly can. And that's how God wants us to live our whole lives, church. He doesn't want 50% of the glory or 75% or 99% of the glory for what he does. He wants it all 100%. And sometimes the way that he does that is by reminding us of just how powerless we really are so we can stand firm in the gospel and in the gospel alone. Our salvation is in Jesus Christ alone and what he did on the cross alone and nothing else. And how often are even those of us who are saved, who know we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, still want to stand on our works just a little bit. It's a little bit. How do you know you're in Christ? You believe. And then the fruit of our salvation comes forth, but it's not the fruit that saves us. It is Jesus Christ who saves us. God's power is made perfect in weakness. And praise God for that because we're pretty weak, aren't we? Like We're pretty weak when it comes down to it. We want to think we're strong. We want to think we're in control. And it's God's grace when he shows us those moments when we are not in control at all. God's power is made perfect in weakness. Second, we see in this passage that our fear displays God's kindness. Look down at verse 9 with me. I love this part. Verse 9. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. I love this. I love how we see the kindness of the Lord in this. Because in one sense, even though... His army's been reduced to 300. Gideon shouldn't be afraid. God has revealed himself over and over and over again. And Gideon should just simply trust that God's going to deliver him once again. And yet, Gideon's afraid. I would be too if I were him. And I love this, rather than rebuking Gideon for his fear, God doesn't say, how dare you be afraid after all I've shown you? How could you? I'm so disappointed in you, Gideon, for being afraid. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to deliver you, but if you're afraid... I've got something to show you. Go down to the camp, and I promise what you hear is going to take away your fear. Verse 11 shows us what happened. So then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay among along the valley like locusts in abundance. These are his enemies. They're like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. Okay? This is not making me feel better yet, God. You said if I go down there, I'm going to feel better about fighting these guys with 300 men, and yet here I am, and what do I see is innumerable people, innumerable camels, and uh, this is not making me feel any better. Verse 13, this is where we see God just clearly at work. When Gideon came... "'Behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, "'Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian "'and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat.'" Verse 14, "'And his comrade answered, "'This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel.'" God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. I love this. He's going down. God tells him, if you're afraid, I've got another sign for you. So he goes down among all these people, and he just so happens, quote, unquote, you go to this Midianite private. He's a nobody. He just overhears this conversation of this dream that he had and the interpretation of the dream that his friend gave him that they would be successful in battle. I love it. God didn't have to do this, right? God never has to prove himself, ever. Any time that God has shown himself to you in his kindness, in a special way, and every single one of us who follow God can think of a time when God has just like, all of a sudden you just see something, like, that's God. Like, right there, that's God. God never has to do that. He's God. He's not trying to prove himself to anybody. Like, if, like let's say Tony Dungy, applied to be the Tri-Central football coach, would Mr. Long put him through a rigorous series of interviews and demand to see his references. He would not. He would just give him the job. He might actually give him his own job as well. <laughs> How much more God, the God of the universe, who says, Hey, you're going to be successful. I'm going to give this army into your hands. Don't be afraid. But if you're afraid, Gideon, I've got something to show he doesn't rebuke him for his fear. He comforts him. Psalm one hundred three fourteen says, He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows. So you don't have to put up a facade. You don't have to be fake with the Lord. He knows your frame, and he remembers that you're dust. Our fear reveals something beautiful, About the heart of God, that He is kind, that He's tender, and that He gives you strength to do what He calls you to do. Now, He didn't tell, you need to catch this. He didn't tell Gideon, if you're afraid, just go home and I'm going to take care of this battle. You don't even have to be there. He didn't tell him that. Gideon was still going to have to go to battle, but God reminded him that He is right there with Him. And if God is for us, who can be against us? God doesn't need you to be fearless. He doesn't need you to be powerful. He doesn't need you to have it all together in order to use you. Let me say that one more time. God doesn't need you to be fearless. He does not need you to be powerful. And he does not need you to have it all together in order to use you. What does he need? He needs you to be utterly dependent on him. To be willing to trust him even through the fear Maybe I'm just preaching to myself here because I'm a naturally fearful person. But I just love this about our God. He knows our hearts. We need to just be utterly dependent on Him. And when He shows Himself to us, when He reveals Himself to you, when you're seeking the Lord time and time again, and God just gives you like a glimpse. How beautiful are those moments when He just gives you this glimpse of who He is. That is only his kindness. He never has to do it, and yet he does because he loves you, and he is kind, and he is good. And our fear reveals the kindness of God. I love that. There's a lot more that can be said about this story, but for the sake of time, we are going to skip down to the end now. and We're going to see kind of a sobering lesson here, which is that our failure displays God's victory. So as we continue with the cycle theme in the book of Judges, we see God delivers Israel from the Midianites. He does it. He says he's going to do it with 300 men, and then he does it, and it is amazing. And incredibly, what he did, what God did, was that the 300 men didn't actually kill anyone, but they tricked the Midianites into fleeing where they were greeted greeted by the tribe of Ephraim who defeated them. So this is a massive success story here, that God has pared down Gideon's army to 300 and defeated this massive army. This is a massive success story. This is a massive testimony to God saving his people. And because this is the book of Judges, it's going to end in a massive failure of the leader. That's what happens over and over again. We keep wanting to get to the end of these stories and see that they all lived happily ever after, but this does not happen. So go all the way down to verse 22. It says this, The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. So you've saved us, Gideon. We want you to be our king now. Please rule over us. Like, we need a king, and you're the guy. There's nobody else for us. And that's not a bad thing, necessarily. But Gideon can kind of, and we tell by what he says, but Gideon can discern that the reason they want him to be king is because they'd rather have a man rule over them than God. And so Gideon knows this, and he appears to do the right thing. Look at verse 23. I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That's a good thing. He says, I'm not going to rule over you. That's God's job. So hooray for Gideon. You did the right thing here, except not really. Because the rest of the passage makes it clear that this is only lip service that Gideon is giving. He says he doesn't want to be king, but everything that he does after this makes it explicitly clear that he absolutely does want to be the king and starts living like the king immediately. So first, he asks for a financial reward from everyone, which is something that a king would do after a successful battle. So he becomes extremely wealthy. Then it says he makes an ephod with the gold that they give him. What in the world is an ephod? Well, we don't have an equivalent to that, but this was something that was used in the temple to determine God's will. So kind of like casting lots. This is something that people would go to and it would, it would show what God's will Was. And so Gideon makes a contraband ephod, essentially. And what this is showing us is that Gideon wants Israel to come to him to determine God's will rather than to go to the tabernacle. So Gideon is demanding financial reward from everyone, and then he's actually setting up a competing worship site. Verse 27 tells us what God thinks about this. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare. To Gideon and his family, this is not good. After all that God has done in Gideon's life, this is what Gideon does. So he does two things that a king would do demands that they make him rich and make sure that everyone comes to him for advice. He also takes on a whole bunch of wives and concubines, which is also what a king would have done. So at this point, he says he doesn't want to be a king, but he's living like a king. But maybe you want to give him the benefit of the doubt and say, well, he's still not being the king. He still doesn't think he's the king. Well, here's the kicker. This one makes me laugh, because he has a son, and he names him Abimelech. Do you know what Abimelech means? It means, my dad is the king. <laughs> if you name him, my dad is the king, you probably think of yourself As the king. So Gideon's just completely full of it when he says he's not going to be the king. Then we get to something that's sad. Verse 28 tells us something we've seen several times in Judges so far. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. So the land has rest, but as we know from what we just read, It's not a peaceful God honoring rest, because even as the land has rest, Israel is whoring themselves after Gideon, after this ephod, rather than following after God. And here's the sad part, is that this is the last time we're going to see those words in the book of Judges. So like we said, Judges starts up here and ends down here. Well, this is where it takes a turn for the worst, because we will never again see in the book of Judges the land having rest. So even though Gideon showed incredible faith in God, even though God did awesome things through him and his obedience, things still end badly. And when it's when we look at the failure of Gideon as well as our own failure, we see in that failure the victory of God. God did great things through Gideon, but Gideon ultimately failed. And you know what? You can basically insert any character in the Bible, any person in the Bible, in that sentence. They did great things, but they ultimately failed to be faithful. All except for one, right? Jesus. Jesus. So it's in the failure of these people Time and time and time again that we see the glory and majesty of our Savior on full display. Only one man was the true and better Adam who represented how to have fellowship with God without sin. Only one man was the new and better Abraham, who would be the true father of many nations. Only one was the new and better Moses, who would lead his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. Only one would be the new and better David, who would rule with justice and kindness and mercy. Where everyone failed, Jesus succeeded. Amen? He is the only true Savior. And there's no one else. Only Jesus can save. I think that uh, before you follow Jesus, you can kind of have this idea that becoming a Christian means... You get it all together in your life until you feel like you can finally fit in church. Like you made a life mess out of your life, and so I need to just kind of get, get everything together so I can look presentable, so I can fit in with everybody at church. Guess what? It's not that. In fact, it is the exact opposite. Following Jesus is a recognition of your failure. Following Jesus is admitting that your best efforts will always fall short. And if you're really honest with yourself, like in a gut level way, you'll know that to be true. You'll know that you cannot do it on your own. You need somebody to save you. And when you admit that failure failure, and you repent of your best efforts to do it on your own, that is when the victory of Jesus over sin is most prominently displayed for all to see. That's the beautiful picture that we're going to see in baptism this morning. For the three who will be baptized, they are going to be recognizing that their only hope, their only hope for salvation, is to let Jesus put their old self to death and be raised to life with him. Our failure displays the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross over sin to rule and reign forever and ever. It's the beauty of the gospel. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. Praise the Lord. God doesn't work like we do. God doesn't think like we do. And this quirky little story about Gideon has shown us three ways that God flips things upside down and uses our frailty, our humanity for his glory. His power is displayed in our weakness. It is human thinking to think that bigger and better and more is always better. God shows His power in using what is weak, what is small, what is worthless in man's eyes. He gives gives His treasure in jars of clay to show that His power is made perfect. In weakness. His power is displayed in our weakness. His kindness is displayed in our fear. When we're afraid, God doesn't rebuke us for that fear. He draws near. So if you're afraid, cry out to God and he will draw near to you. He's patient. He's loving. He walks alongside us to show us that even in our fear, he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask Or imagine. And his victory is displayed in our failure. Because only one man lived a sinless life. In fact, only one man was even close. That's Jesus. Jesus Christ, our Lord. He deserves all our praise. All the honor and all the glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you. That you don't work like we do, that you don't think like we do. So God, sometimes it's hard to understand what you're doing. I'm sure it was hard for Gideon to understand why in the world you'd want to slash his army by 99%. God, and sometimes it's hard for us to understand what you're doing when we feel like we're getting weaker and weaker, when things are getting harder and harder, that we're less and less capable to do things on our own. And so, Lord, may this text be a reminder to us this morning, to those of us in that place, that in our weakness, your power is displayed all the more. God, do that. Do that in this church, God. Work among us. Display your power and your glory. God, we thank you that you draw near to us in our fear, that you show us kindness sometimes. You never, ever have to do that, and you do. We thank you, God. We thank you for your victory where we failed. We thank you for sending your son, the only one who could save us, the only one who did. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here this morning who does not know you, does not know Jesus as their Savior, God, that they would know the freedom that is found in repenting of our sin and believing the gospel, of letting go that burden, of taking that burden off of our backs and putting it on the cross and being free of it. We thank you that we don't have to clean ourselves up, that we don't have to get everything under control before we do that. You tell us to come as we are. Lord, if there's anyone still carrying that burden this morning here in this place, we just ask that they would come to the cross and kneel and know that you are God, that you are good, that you love them so much. God, we thank you for those who are going to be baptized here in just a few minutes for the recognition that you've already done that in their lives, that the old self has been put to death and they have been raised to life in Christ. What a symbol, what a celebration. We thank you, God. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name.